Chapter Nine of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Nine: The Prisoner. When Edmund recovered his senses, he found that he was being carried along on a rough litter through the forest. It was some little time before he realized his position and recalled the circumstances of the attack. After the dragon had moved safely out into the fjord, his assailants had returned to the spot where they had attacked the three Saxons who had landed. Two of them were without life, but they found that the third, who from his abilities was evidently of higher rank, and whom they judged, although still but a youth, to be the commander of the Saxon party, had only been stunned by the blow of the club which had felled him. It was at once resolved to carry him to the Jarl of the district, who would assuredly wish to learn from him the meaning of the coming of the strange ship. That the dragon was a Saxon vessel the Northmen were sure. Many of them had been on expeditions across the seas, and knew the Saxons both from their dress and manner of wearing their hair. But the ship was unlike anything they had seen before, and it seemed above all things strange that when, as they understood, England had been completely conquered, Saxon warships should be entering a northern fjord. For many hours Edmund was carried through the forest. He wondered to himself whether he would be slain on his arrival or kept as a slave, for the Norse and Saxon tongues were so similar that he was perfectly able to understand the language of his captors. A party of twelve men accompanied him, four of whom bore the litter, and were relieved at intervals by the others. After some hours the feelings of giddiness and weakness passed off, and on the men stopping to change bearers, he expressed his readiness to walk. Hitherto he had lain with his eyes closed, as he thought it better to remain as he was, until he felt perfectly able to keep up with his captors in a journey which might, for aught he knew, be a long time. The Northmen expressed their satisfaction at finding that their burden need no longer be carried, and throwing aside the boughs which had formed the litter proceeded with him on their way. They asked him many questions concerning the dragon, most of these he answered readily, but he evaded those as to the place where she had been built, or the port from which she had sailed. It was not until late in the afternoon that they arrived at the abode of the Jarl Bjorn. It was a rough abode, constructed of timber, thatched with rushes, for as yet the Northmen were scarcely a settled people. The tribes, for the most part, wandering in the forests hunting, were not engaged in those warlike expeditions which they loved above all other things. Only the leaders dwelt in anything like permanent abodes, the rest raising huts of boughs at such places as they might make any stay at. One of Edmund's conductors had gone on ahead, and as the party approached the building, Bjorn came out from his house to meet them. He was, like almost all Northmen, a man of great stature and immense strength. Some fifty years had passed over his head, but he was still in the prime of his life. For the Northmen, owing to their life of constant activity, the development of their muscles from childhood, and their existence passed in the open air, retained their strength and vigor to a great age. So assiduous was their training, and so rapidly did their figures develop in consequence, that at the age of fifteen a young Northman received arms and was regarded as a man, although he did not marry until many years afterwards, early wedlock being strongly discouraged among them. By Bjorn's side stood his son, who, though but twenty-two years old, rivaled him in stature and in muscular development, although lacking the great width of shoulder of the Jarl. As Edmund approached, a war-horse of Jarl fastened up to a post close to the entrance of the house neighed loudly. 
Bjorn looked surprised. The neighing of a horse among the Northmen was regarded as the happiest of auguries, and in their sacred groves horses were tied up, as the neighing of these animals was considered an infallible proof that a propitious answer would be given by the gods to the prayer of any petitioner who sought their aid. "'By Thor!' Bjorn exclaimed. "'My good war-horse welcomes the stranger. As I said to you anon, Sven, I had intended to offer him as a sacrifice to Odin, but as the gods have thus declared him welcome here, I must needs change my intentions. "'Who are you, young Saxon?' he asked, as Edmund was brought before him. "'And whence do you come? And how is it that a warship of your people is found upon our coasts?' "'I am Edmund,' the young man said steadily, "'an earldorman of King Alfred of the West Saxons. The ship which was seen on your coast is mine. I built it to attack the Northmen who harry our coasts. I am here because when, in chase of four of your ships, a storm arose and blew us thither. You speak boldly, the Jarl said, for one in the hands of his foes. How old are you? I am twenty-two, Edmund replied. Well, the same age as you, Svein. Stand side by side and let me compare you. Ay, he went on, he lacks nigh three inches of your height, but he is more than that bigger across the shoulders. A stalwart young champion, indeed, and does brave credit to his rearing. These West Saxons have shown themselves worthy foemen, and handled us roughly last year, as this will testify. And he pointed to the scar of a sword cut across his face. Doubtless this is the son of that Saxon earl who more than once last summer inflicted heavy losses upon us. Is that so, young Saxon? I am the Earl Dorman Edmund himself, the young man replied quietly. My successes were won not by my own strength or courage, but by the valour of those under me who, fighting in a novel manner, gained advantage over your Northmen. "'By Thor!' Bjorn exclaimed, "'and this is the youth who attacked us at night and drove off the cattle we had taken, and slew many of our followers, Svan. Truly he would be a rare sacrifice to offer to Woden, but the god has himself welcomed him here.' "'It may be that he welcomed him as a sacrifice, father,' Svan suggested. "'Ah, that may be so,' the Jarl replied. We must consult the omens to find out the true meaning of my charger's neighing. Nevertheless, in either case I shall be content. For he be not welcomed as a sacrifice, he is welcome as bringing good fortune. And in truth he will make a noble cup-bearer to me. It's not every Jarl who is waited upon by a Saxon Eldorman. But till the omens have spoken, let him be set aside and carefully watched. In a day or two we will journey to Odin's temple and there consult the auguries. Three days passed, during which Edmund was well fed and treated. At the end of that time he was ordered to accompany the Jarl on a journey. Two days' travelling brought them to a temple of Odin. It was a rough structure of unhewn stone situated in a wood. Bjorn and his son entered, while Edmund remained without under a guard. Presently the Jarl and his son came out with a priest. The latter carried a white bag in his hand with twelve small pieces of wood. On half of these four small nicks were cut, on the other five nicks. All were placed in the bag, which was then shaken. Now the priest said, You will see the will of Odin. The first three sticks drawn out will declare it. If true of the three bear an even number of nicks, the neighing of your horse signifies that Odin accepted the sacrifice. If two of them bear unequal numbers, then it meant his coming was propitious to you. The bag was again shaken. Edmund looked on calmly, for Saxons and Northmen alike disdained to show the slightest fear of death. Even the colour did not fade from his cheek, as he watched the trial upon which his life depended. 
The first stick drawn out bore five marks. The priest showed it to the jarl, and without a word dropped it in the bag again. This was again shaken, and another stick drawn out. This bore but four notches. The chances were even. The silence was unbroken until the third twig was drawn. "'Odin has spoken,' the priest said. "'The neigh of the horse indicated that the coming of this Saxon was propitious to your house.' The jarl gave an exclamation of satisfaction, while Svan's brow darkened. Bjorn had indeed set his heart upon retaining this famous young Saxon leader as his slave and cup-bearer, and it was probable that in his interview with the priest before the drawing his inclinations had been clearly shown, for a slight difference between the thickness of the sticks might well have existed, and served as an index to the priest in drawing them. Bjorn, in his gratification at the answer of the god, bestowed a handsome present upon the priest, and then rode back to his abode well content with his journey. Edmund was at once installed in his new duties. Hitherto he had not entered the house, nor seen the females of the family. Ulfra, the jarl's wife, was a woman of commanding stature and appearance. Like most of the northern women, she had accompanied her husband in his many wanderings, and shared his dangers and privations. The wives of the Norsemen occupied a far more exalted position in the households of their lords than those of the people of southern Europe. They were not only mistresses of the house, but were treated with respect as well as with affection. They were not, as in the South, regarded as puppets for the amusement of an idle hour, but were the companions and advisers of their husbands, occupying a position at least as free and respected as at the present day. There were two daughters, who both bade fair to resemble their mother in stature and dignity of demeanour, for both were models of female strength and activity. Edmund's duties were light. In the morning he gathered firewood for the household, at the meals he handed the dishes, and taking his station behind the jarl's chair refilled his goblet with mead as often as it was empty. Usually a large party sat down to supper, for an expedition to France was talked of in the spring, and the jarls and warriors often met to discuss the place of starting, the arrangements for the voyage, and the numbers which each leader would place on the field. The feasts, of course, were kept up to a late hour, and, as was the invariable custom of the Northmen, the arrangements decided upon overnight were rediscussed at a morning meeting, for they held that, while over the wine-cup each man would speak the truth frankly and honestly, the colder counsels and greater prudence which the morning brought were needed before any matter could be finally settled. A month thus passed, and Bjorn, his family, and followers then moved south, as there was to be a great conference near the southern point of the country, at which a large number of the chiefs from Denmark were to be present. Edmund observed that, for some reason, Svan was looking forward anxiously to this meeting, and his sisters more than once joked him about his anxiety. "'Pooh, pooh,' the Jarl said one day in answer to such an observation. "'Svan is but a lad yet. I know not what you're driving at, and that Svan is smitten with the charms of my old companion's daughter, the pretty Freda. I noted it when we were in camp together, but it will be fully another ten years yet before Svan can think of marrying. He's got to win for himself the name of a great warrior before a jarl's daughter of proper spirit would so much as think of him. When he has the spoils of France to lay at her feet, it will be time enough. Svan made no reply, but Edmund saw that he was far from pleased at his father's words, and a look of surly determination on his face showed the young Saxon that he would go his own way in the matter if it lay in his power. After ten days' travelling, the party arrived at the rendezvous. 
here drawn up on the shore a vast number of galleys of all sizes, for the greater part of those who had assembled had journeyed by sea. Great numbers of huts, of boughs, and many tents constructed of sails had been erected. Edmund and the other slaves, these being either Saxons or Franks captured in war, soon erected bowers for the Jarl and his family. Edmund had been looking forward to the meeting with much anxiety, for he had judged that some mode of escape might there open to him. Among the Saxon slaves were several young men of strength and vigour, and Edmund had confided to them his project of stealing a boat and sailing away in it, and they, knowing that he had experience in navigation, had readily consented to join him in making an effort for freedom. The Jarl and his family were warmly welcomed by many of their companions in arms, and the day after their arrival Bjorn told Edmund to accompany him to a banquet, at which he and his family were to be present. At four in the afternoon they set out, and presently arrived at a large tent. Edmund waited without until the attendants carried in the dishes, when he entered with them and prepared to take his place behind his master's seat. From a few words which had passed between Svein and his sisters, Edmund doubted not that the companion with whom Bjorn was going to dine was the father of the maiden about whom they had joked him. He was not surprised when on entering he saw Svein talking earnestly with a damsel, somewhat apart from the rest. The entrance of the viands was the signal for all to take their places at the table. They were in all sixteen in number, and as nearly half were women, the meeting was evidently of a family character, as upon occasions of importance or when serious discussions were to take place, men alone sat down. As Edmund advanced to take his place, his eye fell upon the jarl who seated himself at the head of the table, and he, as he did so he gave a slight start of surprise, for he at once recognized in him the northman Sigbert, whose ship he had stopped at the mouth of the Humber. From him his eye glanced at the girl by whose side Svan was on the point of seating himself, and recognized in her the maiden who had besought her father's life. The dinner commenced and proceeded for some little time, when Edmund saw the girl looking fixedly at him. "'Who is that who is standing behind your father's chair?' she asked Svan. "'A Saxon slave,' he answered. "'His vessel was well-nigh wrecked on our coast. Our people captured him and slew some of his followers, and the ship speedily took to flight.' "'Father,' the girl said in a clear voice, which at once attracted the attention of all, "'unless my eyes deceive me, the young Saxon standing behind Jarl Bjorn is he whose ship captured us as we left England, and who suffered no harm to be done to us.' The Northman turned in his chair. "'It is he, Freda, sure enough, though how he comes to be a slave here to my comrade Bjorn I know not. Bjorn, my friend, I owe this youth a great debt of gratitude.' He had my life and the life and honour of Freda in his hands, and he spared both, and slave though he may be of yours at present, yet I hail him as my friend. Tell me, how came he in your hands? He is Edmund, the valiant young Saxon who smote us more than once so heavily down in Wessex. I know it, Bjorn replied, and will tell you how he came into my hands, and in truth he was captured by accident, and not by any valour of my arm. The Jarl then related the circumstances under which Edmund had been captured, and the narrow escape he had had of being offered as a sacrifice to Odin, and Sigbert then told his guests at length the incidents of his capture by the dragon. "'He let me go, and without a ransom,' he concluded, "'and that part of my obligation I should be glad to repay, though for his gentleness to Freyda I must still remain his debtor. What say you, Bjorn, will you sell him to me? Name your price in horses, arms, and armour, and whatever it be I will pay it to you.' 
in truth sigbert bjorn said i like not to part with the lad but since you are so urgent and seeing that you cannot otherwise discharge the obligation under which as you say he has laid you i cannot refuse your prayer as to the price we will arrange that anon then it is settled sigbert said you are a free man ealdorman edmund and he held out his hand to the youth now seat yourself at the table with my guests there are none here who may feel honoured at dining with one of King Alfred's bravest thanes. The transformation in Edmund's position was sudden indeed. A moment since he was a slave, and although he had determined upon making an effort for freedom, he had known that the chances of escape were small, as swift galleys would have been sent off in pursuit, and it was probable that he would have been speedily overtaken and brought back. Now he was free, and would doubtless be allowed to return home with the first party who sailed thither. Sigbert at once tried to make Edmund feel at home, addressing much of his conversation to him. Bjorn, too, spoke in a friendly manner with him, but Svan was silent and sullen. He was clearly ill-pleased at this change of fortune which had turned his father's slave into a fellow-guest and equal. His annoyance was greatly heightened by the fact that it was Freda who had recognized the young Saxon, and the pleasure which her face evinced when her father proposed to purchase him from Bjorn angered him even more. In his heart he cursed the horse whose welcome neigh had in the first instance saved Edmund's life, and the trial by augury which had confirmed the first omen. After the banquet was over, Siegbert requested Edmund to relate his various adventures. The telling of tales daring was one of the favorite amusements of the Danes. Siegbert and his friends quaffed great bumpers of mead, and the ladies sat apart listening while Edmund told his story. "'You have a brave record, indeed,' Siegbert said when he had finished for one so young and fond as are our youths of adventure, there is not one of them of your age who has accomplished a tithe of what you have done. Why, Frida, if this youth were but one of us, he would have the hearts of all the Norse maidens at his feet. In the eyes of a Danish girl, as of a Dane, valor is the highest of recommendations. Oh, I don't know, father, Frida said, coloring at being thus addressed, that we should be as bold as that although assuredly it is but right that a maiden should esteem valour highly. It is to her husband she has to look for protection, and she shares in the honour and spoil which he gains by his valiant deeds. So you have always taught me. And rightly, too, girl, next to being a great hero, the greatest honour is to be the wife of one. I pledge you, Eldorman Edmund, and should be right proud were you a son of mine. You have told your story modestly, for many of the battles and adventures of which you have spoken are known to me by report and fame has given you a larger share in the successes than you claim for yourself. Tis a pity you were not born a Northman, for there is little for you to do in Saxon England now. I do not despair yet, Edmund replied. Things have gone badly with us, but the last blow is not struck yet. You'll hear of King Alfred in the spring, unless I am mistaken. But they say your King Alfred is half a monk, and that he loves reading books more than handling the sword, though to do him justice he has shown himself a brave warrior and has given us far more trouble than all the other Saxon kings together. King Alfred fights bravely, Edmund said, because he is fighting for his country and people. But it is true that he loves not war nor strife. He reads much and thinks more, and should he ever come to his kingdom again he will assuredly be one of the wisest and best monarchs who has ever sat on a throne. He has talked to me much of the things which he has at heart and I know he intends to draw up wise laws for the ruling of his people. We love not greatly being ruled, we Northmen, Bjorn said, 
but for each to go his own way as he wills, provided only he inflicts no ill-will upon his neighbour. We come and we go each as it pleases him. Our fleets traverse the sea and bring home plunder and booty. What need we of laws?' "'Well, at present you have no great need of laws,' Edmund replied, seeing that you lead a wandering life. But when the time shall come, and it must come to you as it has come to other nations, when you will settle down as a rich and powerful community, then laws will become necessary.' Well, Bjorn said, right glad am I that I live before such times have come. So far I can see the settling down you speak of, and the abandonment of the ancient gods has done no great good either to you Saxons or to the Franks. Both of you were in the old-time valiant people, while now you are unable to withstand our arms. You gather goods, and we carry them off. You build cities, and we destroy them. You cultivate the land, and we sweep off the crops. It seems to me that we have the best of it. It seems so at present, Edmund said, but it will not last. Already in Northumbria and in East Anglia the Danes, seeing that there is no more plunder to be had, are settling down and adopting the customs of the Saxons. And so will it be in Mercia and Wessex, if you keep your hold on them. And so will it be in other places. The change, the change is but beginning, but it seems to me certain to come. So I have heard King Alfred say. And does he think, Svein said scoffingly, speaking almost for the first time, that we shall abandon the worship of our gods and take to that of your Christ. He thinks so and hopes so, Edmund replied quietly. So long as men's lives are spent wholly in war, they may worship gods like yours. But when once settled in peaceful pursuits, they will assuredly recognize the beauty and holiness of the life of Christ. Pardon me, he said, turning to Sigbert, if it seems to you that I, being still young, speak with overboldness. But I am telling you what King Alfred says, and all men recognize his wisdom and goodness. "'I know not of your religion myself,' Sigbert replied, "'but I will own willingly that, though its teachings may be peaceful, it makes not cowards out of those who believe in it. I have seen over and over again old men and young men die on the altars of their churches as fearlessly and calmly as a Viking should do when his time comes. No Northman fears death, for he knows that a joyous time awaits him but I am bound to say that your Christians meet death to the full as calmly. Well, each his own way, I say, and for aught I know there may be a Christian heaven as well as the halls of Odin, and all may be rewarded in their own way for their deeds. Bjorn and his party now rose to take leave. I'll come across to your tent in the morning, Sigbert said, and we can then discuss what payment I shall make you for this young Saxon. I fear not that you will prove over hard to your old comrade." After Bjorn had departed, Sigbert assigned to Edmund a place in his tent as an honoured guest. Slaves brought in bundles of rushes for the beds. Freda retired to a small tent which had been erected for her adjoining the large one, and the Jarl and Edmund lay down on their piles of rushes at the upper end of the tent. Sigbert's companions and followers stretched themselves along the sides. The slaves lay down without, and in a few minutes silence reigned in the tent. End of chapter 9 Recording by Mike Harris